All right, welcome to another episode of the Restroom Mindset Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Wright, and today I am joined with Brett Medford, who is a U.S. Navy rescue swimmer. What's going on, Brett? What's up? Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, if you just want to go ahead and introduce yourself as like your full rank and title, not rank, but just title and kind of a little background of yourself, where are you from? Uh, yeah, I'm uh, AWS2. I'm Brad Medford, like you already said. I'm uh, from originally from Los Angeles, California. I've been in the Navy for going on eight years now. Um, and I was in Japan first, so I went through the pipeline. Went to Japan yeah. for four years, then came down to Key West, and that's where I am now. Nice. Yeah, you're pretty much on like a similar track to me. I've been in like right around eight years too now. Okay. I had a little gap, like a four-year gap, but total of eight years in service. Okay, sweet. Did you yeah. decide to get out and then come back in or? Yeah, I got out and went okay. to school and then I got okay. back in, but doing the same job. So just a useless degree at Fair. this point. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So yeah, the big question, I guess, um, everyone's always, there's like a whole Reddit page, you know, for rescue swimmers, but we have, it's all the same. There's Navy and Coast Guard, but it's just a rescue swimmer Reddit page. So why'd you pick the Navy over any job specifically? I don't know if you wanted to be a rescue swimmer, um, join the Navy or? Originally... I had a buddy that joined and he went just the regular Navy. He was an ET, uh, so electrician, uh, electronics technician. You're right. Uh, so he went there. Um, I always was, as a kid, wanted to join the military. And at the time, I wanted to do kind of something with any type of special program, whether it was like Navy SEALs or whatever it was. But at the time, I was 18. All I wanted to do was like, I need to get out of this town and move on with my life. So I decided, you know what, maybe I'll start here and then see where it takes me. And, you know, I guess it stuck with me for the next seven years after that. So nice. Yeah. Kind of crazy how it worked out because um, I didn't have really have a swimming background until my <clears throat> senior year of high school. So I I played sports. I played all like football, basketball and baseball. My senior year, I got cut from my baseball team. Then I was like, you know what, I got to do something. So I went to swimming. I ended up not quitting the swim team because it was, you know, rough. And then it happened to help me out for the job that I got and test it out. So kind of everything works out for a reason. Yeah. Yeah. I always feel like, especially in Los Angeles, if you're going to high school there, did you have a water polo team or anything? Oh uh, yeah. Uh, so our water polo team was pretty good. I yeah. obviously wasn't on it. Uh, they were known for going pretty far. Uh, but yeah. That's like the big training thing is yeah. People like as far as I'm sure it's the same with the Navy, but the Coast Guard is like, as far as rescue swimmers go, there's huge, like diverse background of people, like people who didn't swim at all growing up and just learned while they were in mm -hmm. the Coast Guard. And there's people who like swam D1, but I always find the the best, most capable candidates who have like the highest likelihood of getting through were usually like water polo players or like surfers. Mm -hmm. Most of us are guys when I know a lot of, they were either community college, somewhat professional swimming or not professional, but, uh, you know, college swimmers were yeah. really fast and they just crush it with everything they do. So yeah, I agree. Totally. With you. Yeah. 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 So let's talk, I guess, Navy, I guess, cause our listeners are pretty familiar with the coast guard pipeline mm. for rescue swimmer school. So let's talk Navy rescue swimmer pipeline. Cause I know it's, it's a lot more uh, intricate than, mm -hmm. than ours. Cause you do a few other jobs. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so it's changed from when I went in about six years ago. So it's a little different now, like the order that it goes in the order for myself. It was just two schools that were switched around, which I'll just explain. So you go to boot camp, right? And so this is currently right now you go to boot camp for about eight to nine weeks. Um, there is no more dive motivation that they have there at the moment. Uh, I guess some sort of contract thing got messed up, but you're What's just dive motivation. So when you're going through boot camp, me, I went through a thing called an 800 division where all the special program candidates were together in one. And you would go to dive motivation in the morning where there's around five, six instructors, maybe more that you just get an extra workout before you okay. start your regular Navy boot camp. So some of them will be retired swim instructors, a couple SEALs, SWIC, EOD, and then there'll be a rescue swimmer there as well. Yeah. Um, so apparently that is not a thing anymore. Um, the SEALs kind of created that yeah. division to keep everyone together. However, the problem that was happening in their eyes was people were feeling entitled when they were going through boot camp because they were separated from everybody else. So they have this sense of entitlement, which I can agree on. Uh, right. I did feel that a little bit like, oh, I'm not part of the regular Navy. I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. above. So they got rid of that now. Now everyone's in a regular division and those individual candidates will wake up early in the morning and go to the dive motivation. 
But right now, I guess there's something on hold. I'm pretty sure it's going to come back. Uh, they're just waiting on contract issues. But after that, you're going to go to Pensacola, Florida, and you're going to check into the Rescue Summer Schoolhouse immediately. Uh, you'll go through a prep course around three to five weeks-ish at the schoolhouse, uh, depending on just the holding process and what the class can take. And then uh, you go through RSS after that. I think you have a little bit of a hold and then you'll go through uh, the next schoolhouse, which is Aircrew Candidate School. That's around three to three weeks-ish where you'll go through the Hilo Dunker where you know you get a simulated helicopter, flip upside down, basic um, PT. Uh, and then after that, you'll go across the base to AWSA school, which is around five to six weeks. What's AWS stand for? Just uh, it doesn't. It's it stands for. It's not really have a, an exact acronym that yeah. follows. It's helicopter non tactical air crewman is what okay. it is, and officially, um, yeah, really kind of confusing, but that's what it uh, stands for. Um, after the AWSA school, that's so you get your rate out of rescue summer school because there's two rates, but I will only speak on my rate of the AWS because the AWRs have a completely different pipeline and mission and stuff, but we can so, talk about. So yeah, AWS and AWR, you both, you go through uh, our rescue summer school and right. then you split after that basically. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. You go through, we'll go through uh air crew candidate school as well. Cause it's the same, all the air oh, crewmen in the Navy go through that school. So we'll have. Yeah fixed wing air crewmen go through it. We kind of all lump together because we all hold the AW like a rating. Yeah. Um, and then we'll split up into our platforms after that. So it kind of okay. lumps us all together. And when you um, go through AW uh, air crew school, are you getting your qualification on your designated helicopter or do you do that when you get to your unit? No, you get that uh, through your unit. The, the helo dunker is the same for all crewmen and pilots. There is no really different from fixed wing. The only thing for fixed wing guys, if they're parachute, they'll do a parachute drag through the oh, water okay. and stuff Got like it. that. For yeah. uh, And then they won't have oxygen. And then the helicopters will have oxygen. Okay. That's the only difference. Yeah. So it's very basic. Just, yeah. Got it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, then after AWS, A school, that's, as I said, five weeks, you'll go through your respective fleet replacement squadron, either in Norfolk, Virginia, or San Diego. And then after that, you'll go qualify and pick whatever uh, squadron you get handed to you. I was voluntold kind of to go to my right. squadron. Uh, my class of four, we had a choice. We got it given the orders. And I think I remember to this, it was one for Virginia, two for Guam, one for Japan. And it went kind of in cheap, uh, I think GPA order or whatever. And I was just last of the draw. So yeah. I got sent to Japan. Nice. So. <laughs> yeah. Was, mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I feel like, yeah, Guam or Japan would be like, I mean, equally far, but I actually think I would like Japan better. It depends on what you're and what you're into, really. I had no idea what to expect when I went to Japan. Uh, I heard, oh, Japan would be a great time. But for me, man, I was only such in a small world and my yeah. small life in Los Angeles. So the Navy was the big first step of traveling really out of the, of the United States. Getting yeah. used to that. Then I went to San Diego, which is a little bit more close to home. Then going to Japan was the big holy crap way. You know, here's this large world that I have to suddenly just take on and, you know, go from there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, so um, the, the big filter in that whole pipeline is going to be at rest of summer school, right? I'm just assuming. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, that would be the big test. It's, I would say the fleet replacement squadron too, because there's just a lot of information given to you because it's not so centric around the rescue swimmer. Got um, it. So when you go through rescue summer school, obviously that's the big hump. That's what everyone talks about, right? But the follow-on schools have their knowledge into incorporate into it. So uh, for the FRS, you have to learn the whole aircraft, right? On a very, I don't say decent amount of knowledge level yeah. compared to the senior guys, obviously not, but um, that was- It's like a basic, is that where you're getting your base, like your qualification on the aircraft or do you still wait yep. till you get to Japan? You're doing it there. Oh yeah, yeah, you're doing it there. Okay. So, so you do all your initial training flights. Hey, welcome just to yeah. be a crewman in the aircraft, learn basic flight maneuvers, uh, learn yep. how to hoist a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah. Things like that. Still a lot of knowledge incorporated with it though. Yeah. How long is that thought. one? I didn't know you guys had that. How long is that school? Uh, I was, I think almost a full year for me when okay. I went through and it depends on the flights that get canceled and stuff. Yeah. Uh, That's you fail along the way or whatever. That's pretty sweet. Yeah, we have in the Coast Guard, we're way smaller, obviously. So 
are, you know, you go through a school and then you basically go to a unit and you do all that training at your local unit. Really? So the unit okay. has a whole training program set up for, for individuals. So we'll have rescue swimmers and flight mechanics. They'll graduate from their respective A schools and they'll come to the unit and then they go through like a training pipeline that the unit wow. has set up. Yeah. So it's a, it's pretty taxing on the units, I would say. And it's pretty sweet. I think we're just too small to be able to set up something like that for, for the whole Coast Guard, but it's mm. definitely a cool idea. I feel like it makes sense for you guys because you're not going to be deploying almost immediately. I knew guys yeah. who would graduate from the FRS. They would go to their next command and then three weeks, four weeks later deploying, or they're meeting that command on the ship. So, Oh yeah. Um, and that's kind of the thing that we're trying to fix at the moment is to get guys. Once they arrive on the fleet, they are fully qualified and they're actually usable on a deployable level besides the rescue swimmer, which we can that's talk like about the, later as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. So yeah, the big draw is the rest of summer. Um, it was that the draw for you too, or did you kind of know going in that you're going to be doing all these aircrew duties and everything like, cause no big draw was the the rescue swimmer. And that's all that was talked about. Like yeah. the, in the past, that's all people say. That's all they know. And you know, the advertisement just wasn't, Oh, you're also going to do all of this stuff. So yeah. it's kind of a big shock. Once you get there, you're like, Oh crap, I have to learn all this stuff too. Uh, okay. Yeah. Adjust from there. Yeah. Yeah. Did you find it like pretty, like, is that stuff, do you like at, I guess now? Cause I feel like a lot of it, we, we only are rescue swimmers. So we have a very narrow skill set, which it's like very, I would say like a very, we had, it's like a sharp skill set, but we don't mm -hmm. have any like hoisting capabilities or anything. We have other people doing that. So, yeah, it's a lot. Um, I would, if you corporate, if you actually really want to be knowledgeable on every single mission that we're supposed to be good at, yeah, uh, it can be kind of overwhelming a little bit, at least for when I initially joined, it was, uh, also the little, you know, I was a young kid, at least 20 years old, trying to take on everything. Like, Holy crap, have to learn all this stuff. I actually liked it. The, they call it the tactics side of the house. Yeah. Uh, Cause it incorporates the rescue swimmer, um, in a more kind of advanced way. That's a little bit different than you guys. Uh, so it's, you know, I'll give you the kind of five mission sets that as the HSC community, that's what our squadrons are called, uh, helicopter sea combat squadrons are responsible for. So the first one, uh, I'll just kind of go in like least importance to what I think is most important uh, is anti-mine countermeasures. So AMCM, um, that's only a few squadrons do that. Just like all communities of at least the Navy, you have certain missions that just only a few squadrons do that. So that's one of them. Uh, the next one after that is limited ASUW. So anti-surface warfare. So be able to um, attack smaller vessels, defend ships in a tight strait, you know, like going through the straits or anything like that. Uh, so that's number two. The third one is uh, special operations forces, maritime support. So anything that they, those guys want to do over water, whether it's fast roping them onto vessels, taking down uh, vessels like HV HVBSS or helicopter visit board search and seizure, uh, things like that. Uh, the fourth one, uh, is maritime personnel recovery. And that is a very broad spectrum. So the real big difference between you guys and us, uh, you guys call it search and rescue. It's really a civilian mission set us. It's, yeah. it's the personnel recovery. The DOD operates off of personnel recovery. That's what they entitle and call everything. Right. So we fall under that. And that could be anything from aviators punching out, which usually is our specialty, but we also can recover either medical evacuations for special operations forces, guys who fall overboard, you know, mishap crashes, uh, ship crashes that's happened in the past few years. So things like that, that is anything in the maritime at sea and be able to uh, respond to that at any time. And then the fifth one, crap is escaping my mind at the moment. Uh, Too many missions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, combat logistics, which okay. is you know exactly what it is taking personnel or cargo from one ship to another Got it. which is really the basic so those five things are what we're supposed to be good at okay and it could be a lot so we're not really it leaves we're not really a specialty like you yeah. guys so we have to be able to adapt and it makes 100 percent sense because the navy doesn't have this thing called real estate on yeah. ships yeah the navy is always going to operate off of one person to be able to do four or five different jobs and that's always going to be that way a lot of guys in our community would like to see us go towards the speciality. Um, right. Honestly, I would too, but looking at it from a top-down aspect, it makes 100% sense 
the Navy has been like that for the longest time and it's not going to change. It's not like we're going to be building huge aircraft carriers. Well, we're getting bigger slowly, but you know, that are 3000 feet long and have all this real estate compared to if you operate on land, but right. Yeah. That makes total sense mm -hmm. when you just describe it like that, I guess. Yeah. Is there, um, so when you're in Japan, were you off of a, a carrier? Yep. I was okay. off the uh, USS Ronald Reagan. And that was, I would say very it was high work tempo because the carrier goes out all the time. Yeah. Uh, the cycles are when it goes out, it's always changes from year to year, but I deployed four times when I was out there, three on the carrier plus one on my Admiral's flagship, um, okay. especially going through COVID too. I had a COVID deployment. That was brutal. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, <laughs> it was, uh, it was a lot out there, especially in Japan. Usually things are kind of amped up times two when it comes to anything to do with image and look and also oh, yeah. how to safely do stuff. And that's right. just how Japan is because yeah. we're in another country. We're not in our own. So you try to be respectful and then like, yeah, like mm. put your best face for it. And you're just like, oh, it's just, yeah, I'm sure the regulations were like super strict and just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, we were on the ship and man, <laughs> there was at times where all the gyms were closed and we only can have half of our guys in our shop at a time. So the other half would just wander around the ship or go back to their birthing. And, you know, yeah. I can't lay in my, lay in my bed or rack for, you know, eight plus hours a day after I already slept. So we would just walk around the ship and people would yell at us. Like, what are you guys doing? We're like, well, we can't be in our shops. We can't go to the gym. We can't go to lounges. What do, what do you want from us? So yeah. we had to adjust that. That was, that was, that was a good adjustment, but over time it, it got better. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally missed the whole COVID thing. I got out in 2017. I, I didn't get back in until 2021. So I just missed all of it. So thank God. I'm pretty fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then as far as uh, so you're on a carrier. Um, uh, is there I know everyone, I mean, in our rate too, like we're always wanting to like get more training and like more hands-on, more specialized. Um, is there opportunities for you guys? Like, is there like land-based units where you can broaden your your skill set in search and rescue, or is that kind of not a part of your job at all um when you're on the carrier doing any type of training like that is going to be very difficult to do because i don't have to request it's not a request to my commands commanding officer right it's not just him i have to ask because it's the ship's admiral and usually on okay. a carrier you have a one star that is there and usually the idea of putting people in the water in the middle of the ocean near his carrier is kind of a touchy subject and you have to persuade him and brief him of why you want to do it and if he's comfortable with that and that can be very difficult to do but if you say the right things I've done it it doesn't happen that often but you know when we do get the chance he gives us the green light and we and everything just happens to line up where the jets aren't flying we don't have any logistics uh responsibilities that day so we can go out and jump four or five maybe six dudes and two aircraft so yeah I was thinking more like, uh, like, can you get stationed? Maybe like you do a tour on a carrier. Can you get stationed somewhere in a land-based unit to where, where you're doing like different type of search and rescue? Uh, is that, is that a thing? I know, Cause I know there's like certain units, um, in the Navy that do search mm -hmm. and rescue for civilian side. Um, mm -hmm. there's like, uh, I think it's Lamore. That's a, so those are two different commands. Um, okay. same like in Key West. So the, I'm in Japan. That is a fleet sea going squadron. Yeah. Preparing for, um, you know, wartime scenarios, how to support the fleet around you, which search and rescue is absolutely a part of that. And I've got to practice some pretty cool um, ways how the Navy conducts search and rescue to try to recover their aviators. Um, I did a exercise off of the coast of Japan, northern towards Morsawa, and the Air Force kind of set up this big exercise for us. And I went in a giant room and my chief next to me is like, hey, you're going to brief everyone about the recovery. I'm like, what? And I go in there, there's captains and a whole bunch of officers. And I was the kind of expert to talk in front of everybody. I was like, okay, well, I guess this is the thing. So there's, I think, I think we had 10, 10 to 12 aircraft, a part of this huge package to support us. Yeah. We took off early. Then their cycle would take off. We would refuel real quick and then go they pretty much walked us in to the area of where the pilot or, you know, ejection was, they secure it for us. And then we go do the rescue. So it's kind of, we have to wait for permission from the jets above us and the supporting aircraft to get into the zone, know that it's clear and then conduct the rescue in a contested environment. 
So in order to do stuff like that, the Navy has a lot of moving parts and support when it comes to recovering their aviators. And yes. So that was probably the coolest thing I I've seen as a joint working as an entire air wing. Um, that was really cool to see. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. Mm. Um, and the command you're in QS now. So like, mm-hmm. what's, what's your primary job now? So you talked about it like Lemoore and Whidbey Island. Uh, they have C, they have shore duty. Uh, and that is, and they have station stars around uh, the United States that supports uh, ranges. So Whidbey Island has one, Lemoore, China Lake, Fallon, Nevada, Paxton River, and then us. So our job down here is not relatively is to support civilian operations. It's not our main thing. Can we do it? Absolutely. Uh, under we do not get interfered based on what our primary mission is. So out here, we get all sorts of aircraft that come to, to conduct training, conduct preparation readiness to go deploy. So we get a constant flux of debts and we're here to support them. So we have to stay alert anytime they're airborne. Luckily for us, uh, they don't really fly at night, which is yeah. sweet. So usually nice. our alert will secure around 17. I think out of all the commands, we, us and Paxton River do not stand a 24-hour duty. We just don't have the manning for it. and We just can't do it. Yeah. Woodby does. They have the manning to do that. And they've had that history for a long time. But I think we used to do it too. But I think eight years ago or something like that, they turned it off saying, that's not what you guys are here for. You guys are here to support right. the military aircraft, which again, it makes makes sense right you guys have Miami. there's miami that's up north that could support but however we will respond to stuff when we are flying it happens quite frequently conducting the searches uh just happen to be airborne um and help out the coast guard as much as we can oh nice yeah like Mm -hmm. will they give you guys search patterns and stuff absolutely yeah we'll hear pom-pom calls over the radio and we'll climb and start listening and see what we can do we'll hear there's a lot of tours you know a lot of tourist attraction out here yeah so there'll be spring breakers that We'll go a little too hard in the paint and we'll kind of respond to uh whatever sandbar or snorkeling tour that they're on just to make sure everyone's okay if we really need to recover them and bring them back uh to a hospital because yeah. that usually transit from their snorkel tour can take like 35 to 40 minutes plus the drive through key west so we're not getting like full recoveries but we will respond and just be on station for anything happens because some sometimes serious things do happen and we've have had them in the past to respond and yeah be able to conduct a rescue yeah i was stationed when i first went to boot camp um got out of boot camp my first unit was the small boat station in marathon okay there. and so like yeah it was like super busy and it's not like key west is way busier obviously but marathon was like which is like kind of the middle of the keys for everyone listening mm-hmm. um was pretty busy for just like a random spot in the middle of the keys you know so i can imagine mm-hmm. that qs would need like I mean, there's a Coast Guard unit there, but I'm sure there's still like plenty of stuff going down where you guys can help mm-hmm. out. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, migrants that are down here. Yeah, migrants from Cuba. Yeah, yeah. That was, so we, you know, us, we can't really, we're not a law enforcement thing. So we can kind of spot them out for you guys and let you guys take care of it and yeah. then support anything of safety of life at sea. So we kind of, we've we found where we can help you guys out where we can and where we cannot uh, based on us being a federal asset c- compared to you guys belonging to that state and Homeland security. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, um, yeah, so I guess I kind of want to get into like your train, your capabilities, mm-hmm. like with it as a rescue swimmer mainly. Um, mm-hmm. so like, say you're going out for a training flight, um, with like, do you, what's a typical training flight for you guys? Cause from the coast yeah. guard standpoint, we'll do like an air crew would be just like two pilots, flight mechanic, and then us would go out and we'll have like a rescue dummy, basically like an Oscar. That will throw mm-hmm. in the water and just practice on him. Um, various pickups. Like, what's a training flight for for you look like? Uh, it's similar in the concepts, but different in what we're doing and how we're doing it. So we do a lot of testing and evaluation down here of newer procedures, either borrowed from you guys and tweaking it a little bit to help us and on in the methods that we're trying to implement, uh, based on the what the fleet needs and what makes sense for them so we're trying to help the fleet out as much as they can because we are able to train so much we can pretty much on monday call our supporting assets and by wednesday we'll have support assets in the water to be able to conduct the training so we're trying to find creative ways to insert swimmers protect the aircraft get the swimmer in and out of the water as fast as we possibly can to increase our ranges so another example of what we're doing we'll bring 
two swimmers on with us to be able to conduct a litter recovery. So if someone ejects, uh, let's just say 190 something miles away, which our range does reach up to 200 miles, we only advertise for around 30 minutes of on-station time, which is not a lot, especially if you have to search for the survivor and find him. So we're trying to find ways where we can maximize that search phase of the search and rescue and minimize the time in the water. So what we'll do, we'll throw a dummy, just saying, uh, we call him a Ruth Lee is what the uh, little flotation dummy. This thing is heavy as hell. I actually love this training device, but it is heavy as hell when it's wet. It's like 200 something pounds. Yeah. It's fantastic. So we'll throw her in the water and we'll practice uh, do two man recoveries. So actually we'll cast out our litter, pretty much just toss it out of the aircraft in a very nice fashion at like t- uh, around, around 10 feet. We'll jump the litter, two swimmers after that, and then practice putting that survivor in that litter and then recover um, the two swimmers in our kind of own methods. Uh, and we still use like a tending line or a trail line is what we call it. Uh, we'll secure that trail line actually in the water and then both swimmers will come up together instead of doing oh, so one you at use a time. A, when you, so you, you're saying, I just want to like run through it because it's totally no different yeah. than what mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're... Typically, you're going to bring two. Will this be an operational too if you're doing something? Like it this it all depends on the scenario. If it's within 50 miles from Key West, we'll send one guy. Okay. Not but if we know it's a it's a long range, our fuel is limited, and we need and we have to maximize our search phase, then we'll fly back to the hangar, grab an additional swimmer, and go. Okay, um, that's what we'd use it for. Okay, so and then so you're dropping when you're dropping the litter. Are you doing like you guys do like a ten and ten, right? Like ten feet. Uh, no. Or, or no. Uh, so that doing? is we consider that to be really fast. Uh, okay. We we tried this multiple times when we were first testing it out, and we realized we were just way too spread apart. So what yeah, we do, that makes we mod we uh we modified it to a ten and one. So okay. you have that forward creep to separate your litter and two swimmers. And yeah. it's just enough where you're not so far from each other. You don't do any hindrance of overshooting the survivor. Cause that was kind of the issue. We would do a 10 and 10 right. and overshoot him. And then the swimmers would have to swim hundred and some meters to get to the survivor. The 10 and one allows us to jump pretty much on top of him. And we're already putting him in the litter, but before even the aircraft comes back into that hover at okay. 70 feet is what we do. So yeah. Nice. Okay. So yeah, you jump, uh, that's three evolutions basically you're throwing the litter out two swimmers um Mm -hmm. and then you're swimming out but so are you deploying with a trail line how's that work so we attach everything to the back of it okay yeah so we attach everything to the back we kind of coil it up and uh, we remove our weight bag our shot bag because we've we have lost uh a few shot bags doing this uh um because we're trying to connect it we have this little uh we took it from a one of our litter kits it's like a lifting sling so yeah. what we did, we got a carabiner, attached it to the side of our trisars and hooked it up to our two-inch snap hook. So we have this kind of device to be able to secure the tray line when we kind of coil it up. Yeah. Um, so I'll kind of talk you through the evolution. We get to the 10 and one, the litter goes out, support swimmer goes out, and the lead swimmer. So we kind of divvy up the roles. The support swimmer is to grab the litter and tow it to the survivor where the lead swimmer is doing disentanglements and checks and, te- and making sure he's okay, if he's conscious, getting all the gear off of him. Yep. So they have two separate jobs. Once that's happened, we meet at a point where we're going to put the survivor into the litter. He will assist me if I'm the lead swimmer, putting the straps around him, securing him in, using a chest pad, everything. And then after that, call for the helo. While that's happening, he is actually deploying the tray line. So he'll open up the ba- the tray line bag, pull it out, have hands on it. I'm doing the last safety checks, hooking up the litter, and I will then help him tend the tray line. So I'll kind of take control of it, and I'll go up to the cabin. Then the crew chief up top will secure the litter. He will attach the tray line back to the equipment ring of the hook send it back down yeah and while we're doing that we're actually starting to secure the tray line in a nice little kind of like you would a rope like basic things yeah. like that yeah, yeah so that's already happening as he's sending it back down to us i hook myself up he is securing it and i'm actually kind of helping him coiling it up so i'll coil up like half of it give it to him get are I'll you doing like it. how are you coiling it i'm just like trying to fi- think of it uh so like like, you know basically think like electrical like uh, a long i'm just thinking of like coiling coiling a rope in the water sounds yeah just like this just like this yeah i got it (laughs) it's um if you like like oh this has happened where guys have let go the initial like the first couple rolls got messed up and they'll let go and try again so uh we'll kind of coil it that way around our arms 
right? So usually we don't start really that coil method around our arms until the hoist is in the water. And I show my swimmer, I'll disconnect the uh, tray line yeah, from the hook. Yeah. So kind of, there's always that uh, risk, but mostly if anything really happens, the guy can just let go just like that. He can pretty yeah. much hold on to it here, have the tray line if something uh, catastrophic happens, but mostly we're pulling guys- up that way, but. Yeah. What's the length of your trail line? 120 feet. Okay. I was even thinking maybe you could have a shorter trail line for something like this because you're not going to be doing yeah. 120 feet. Uh, we can't cut or alter our trail line, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, and I don't know if they make 60 foot trail lines. So yeah. how we kind of mitigate it because it is shallow around here. Sometimes it's 80 feet deep. So the trail line will kind of bunch up on the surface. But that's how we kind of mitigated it is we're just removing the shot bag so it doesn't take it somewhere where you don't want to. We actually have control of the whole thing. And the trail line floats too. So yeah, um, most of the time we're in the hover, it doesn't really do it's anything. It's just like the orange poly pro, right? Yeah, it's it's yellow one. Same thing. Yellow, okay. Yeah, yeah. Same idea, right? Yeah. Um, I'm just trying, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. and then what so you do your litter, you so you get them out of the parachute, get them in the litter. Mm-hmm. Um you're hooking the trail. Where do you hook the trail line up to for you guys? Uh, so do- once um, we have a V strap in the back of our litter. Uh, okay. So it's all, we put it on the survivor's right side uh, yeah. on the back. There's a little, we'll make a little loop and connect it that way. So when we put it in the water, the V straps already connected and it's actually already attached to the trail line. So when we unreal the trail line, it's already attached and ready into a normal hoisting position. Just like if you guys were doing a normal procedures. So yeah. everything is pretty much standard. What we are eliminating is the deployment of the litter in the water using the tray line and then hoisting it down. We actually did multiple evolutions testing that out. We were wasting around three to four minutes doing that of, okay, I got to put the tray line in the water, pull this thing down, disconnect, swim the uh, litter over to the survivor. We were wasting a lot of time and okay, how can we do this better? So kind of sat around the shop, put it all together. We're like, okay, this should work. Tried it out and we were able to do it and the first time was like nine minutes. The next time after that was eight. And then the fastest so far with two guys safely is uh, seven minutes and 30 seconds. Uh, okay. Do that. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So yeah, pretty quick. Pretty interesting. Uh, yeah. yeah it's, uh, pretty quick doing it. And the idea is to limit the hover time of the aircraft. And if we are searching for 20 minutes and we have 30 minutes of on scene time and we happen to find survivor at the last second, can the pilots come to us and say, Hey, can you guys get this guy? And say, yes, we can. And we've done it before Yeah. Um, to be able to, and we don't want to leave a swimmer behind and, or the survivor in the water even longer than he already is. Yeah. And this works and this could work out in the fleet. If uh, you're deploying from a carrier, you have really a long range kind of personnel recovery. And let's say maybe your fuel is not the issue, but it's your supporting aircraft that have a limited on station time. And what we're willing to accept of air cover or something like that. So this kind of goes into big picture stuff too. Yeah, yeah. Not yeah, way above your level or like mm-hmm. our level. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, but we're thinking at that level, like yeah. to prepare for all of these scenarios that we possibly can think of. Um, and it's worked out pretty well. So we'll practice that um procedure multiple times. We'll we'll kind of create uh complex scenarios where we have two to three survivors to really get guys coming from the fleet because as you know we only jump uh our minimum currency is once a year i know you guys oh, okay. what, once a quarter i think uh no yeah we, we have like a lot um we do it uh by annual like every no let's see yeah we do it every half year so 180 days or uh biannually it's uh four free falls for like sling deployments for mm-hmm. uh there's a couple others but yeah that's okay it's a lot more yeah yeah, uh, because we have all these mission sets, it, yeah. it makes sense why it's like that. So when we get guys from the fleet, this is their time down here because we only have to worry about one of the five mission sets that we do. Yeah. So we really practice and get them experienced as close as we possibly can for everything they can possibly think of because they've been so disconnected. Yeah. Usually the rescue that they're preparing for out in the fleet is, um, you know, a guy falls overboard of a ship and he's only one person or and ejection we're not thinking hey you possibly can have a mass casualty or uh multiple survivors in the water so we'll try to simulate and give them that uh, like as real as possible thinking like a real like multi-person scenario in the middle of the ocean using the aircraft that's cool Mm -hmm. yeah and then uh for the litter uh recovery of uh down or something could you do the trail line that whole procedure you just described Mm -hmm. could you do that with one swimmer would you be authorized to use a trail line and everything uh yeah the only thing is the trail line would just have to be recovered yeah. And then you would just hoist down. So the idea was also to 
eliminate the amount of precision hoist our crew chiefs would have to do. Yeah. Same thing with, uh, you know, our crew chiefs. Again, I am a crew chief too. And the fleet has changed recently of how often guys would hoist. So their proficiency kind of wasn't 100% there. Here to, now it is because uh, now we are actually allowed to live hoist um, above 10 feet now. So we actually had a rule where 10 feet was how high you could be actually li- like hoisting a live person. Oh, wow. Uh, with, without a belay line requirement. Yeah. That is no longer a uh, thing. We we're actually allowed to live hoist. And down here, we were, I think we we're the first ones to start doing it. We, I think once that approval came out, we're going to our officer in charge saying, Hey, sir, can we do this? He's like, and he had a told, me and our, our crews be like, okay, just give me a couple days. Let's come up with some safety things or whatever. Yeah. So we came up with a great safety plan and what we can do. We have an entire like island that we own and yeah. we have a pad there and we can, and our rule is we can hoist anywhere around there. As long as the area that you're hoisting to, if a person like a failed hoist or something, uh, can be lowered back down and he can walk back to our landing pad to be able to pick him up and then take him back to the airfield. Uh, so but yeah, really now we hoist all the time. So that okay. proficiency is not really a concern down yeah. here anymore. And the fleet yeah. is starting to do that too. They're starting to hoist all the time, which is fantastic to see. Um, but yeah, so that was the thing. Get rid of the two precision hoists. Oh, and then also, um, could you do like a, a litter augmented pickup, like a lad poo? What is that? Poo? So it's just mm-hmm. like a you the litter. You go up with the litter, like you and the litter are connected. Going up uh, that is an overland procedure. Yeah, cannot... I was trying to. We don't do it over the water either, but I was just like thinking how it would work. But I think it. Uh, we thought of it. Uh, yeah, we're still. I uh, think we're probably waiting on approval for it. Yeah. But, um. Yeah. That's. I guess they haven't really tested a hoist. it out with the. Yeah, it would absolutely. Uh, I think they're still trying to figure out the safety concerns. Yeah. yeah, our overland guys do it all the time uh, yeah. with their hoisting harnesses. But I guess where their harness is sits a little bit lower. They oh, got it. Star wood. So, and you're actually able to stable stabilize the litter more. And then, usually between mountains, you don't have a lot of wind disruption because there's trees and yeah. rocks, or whatever. In the middle of the ocean, right? You have wind coming from all over the place and can yeah. cause, you know, that video. I've, I've seen that uh, you. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, talk about it with that. Yeah, yeah. That's just spinning totally. out of control. Yeah, a lot so, can go wrong. So yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. So <laughs> I was just wondering. Yeah. We've thought about it. We've thought about it. Don't worry. Anything that. People have brought to our table. We're like, yeah, we thought about it. How how can we do this? But, yeah. And then, so yeah, what harness are you, you guys were in the Trisar, you said? Yeah, Trisar. We have older Trisars uh, compared to you guys. I forgot okay. what exactly our Trisar's name is, but it's not as slick as yours. Everything's yeah. on our chest. So our radio would be right here. Uh, we have our strobe light and keb light. So you guys, everything's on your waist, right? Uh, it's both. We have a, okay. there's a new one coming out too. It's not uh, like, some people have it in the fleet, some don't, but you can connect more stuff to your chest. Um, so we have like a waist and then chest stuff also. Okay. Um, yeah, there's like a few, like probably like, I think there's like six pockets around the waist mm-hmm. and then a few on the chest. Um, but yeah, but we use our, like we have on land, like overland mission sets too, but we use the same harness for both. That's, I guess mm-hmm. that would, that would matter for the, for like a land proof in the water. I guess if you're using a different harness, it doesn't hoist the same. Mm-hmm. Only the overland rescue guys have that so lamore china lake and Whidbey have that harness because a lot of their ranges go into overland mountain um mountain ranges obviously yeah so we don't have that in the fleet majority does not have land harnesses uh so we're kind of trying to develop procedures hey for everybody not just a small you a small group of people that have this qualification because only of those commands that i named are repel qualified too the fleet isn't repel qualified. So because they have that harness, it makes sense why they have it. Cause they're yeah. qualified. It's more like a climbing harness. Probably. I'm assuming. Yeah, really yeah, right. exactly. Um, yeah. and then we're trying to do work with Trisars of the standard thing that's issued to the fleet. Right. Okay. I feel like, uh, I was like before I was in the coast guard, but who makes the Trisar? Uh, that's life saving systems. Okay. Yeah. Same company. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. we, we just use the Triton, but mm-hmm. I forget. Yeah. I have to look it up. I'm like, I don't remember like all their stuff mm-hmm. they make, but they have a ton of a few cool harnesses. Um, I think the new uh, one's like the Triton two or something like that. Yeah, I think that's if the I'm one mistaken. that's like, yeah. it's like with the black, um, like the Molly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, I think yeah. we're developing that too, if I'm not mistaken. Hopefully yeah. you'll see it. But that's like slowly coming into like as our older Tritons expire, we're like those are the new ones that are replacing them. So we're just like oh, really? phasing them in. Yeah. I've never seen one in person. I've just seen them on like pictures and stuff. But yeah. They look cool. Man. Yeah, they I seem cool. We, yeah. Not totally. I would sure. like the not because our I think our our flotation tubes are like over my shoulder, like almost. Oh yeah. Uh, I would like that's a, a where lot more too. slick. Yeah, for you well, guys, I feel like right. it's way more. You're right. Like, it is dense to your chest. Yeah. Yeah, it's a little closer. It's easy to get to. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, yours are just like higher up. I guess you're saying. It's they're higher up. They're wider. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like a different device. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And then do you guys do? I know like Lamore. Where's China Lake? Is that California? China Lake is in California. It's on the other side of the mountain range of Lamore. Other side of the Sierras. Got mm-hmm. it. Okay. That would be a cool spot. I feel like. Those guys do uh, a lot of overland rescues. So yeah, I have a couple I friends like there. Follow their Instagram page, and it seems like they do cool search and rescue there. That's stuff I like. I'd like to get into, but yeah, it's a little. We're just like more coast coastal base, obviously, so we don't do as much as that. Um, mm-hmm. When if you get stationed there, do you go into more specialized um, uh, hoisting training, or you do like rappel stuff and yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Service? So they do their HIRA program, which is helicopter inland rescue air crewmen. Also, I again, I've never done any of their yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, training so i hope i don't butcher or sound yeah wrong like, to them mm. a general idea i guess <laughs> mm. yeah um would you be interested in that it's like something like that eventually? uh yeah it seems really cool uh just yeah. i would have to go through a whole rotation again if i wanted to go there i would have to go back oh, to yeah. the fleet another three years oh really with ship life and then rotate back to shore uh because those are shore commands it's supposed to oh. like relax before we go back out to sea so they're kind of yeah they're like giving you so you bounce back i got it okay mm. Okay. Um, I, okay. I did. Yeah. It's like a different type of uh, like deployment, I guess. Cause you're so like deployment based versus like coast guard. Mm-hmm. We're just like search and rescue. So, but you're like at a unit now, but then the, you, they want to send you like to a deployment unit after this kind of like to correct. Your train mm-hmm. to the I have to get all my quals back and everything. And with, with each mission said, there's so many different qualifications that go into it. So being, you know, anti-surface warfare and special operations forces, we're all aerial gunners yeah so we fire guns at the aircraft I okay qualified okay. on that i have That's to go through all the practice mission sets yeah mm-hmm. okay and then yeah for uh the this is for rescue swimmer and just like the general mm-hmm. pipeline do you have medical training yes uh we do our basic first aid at the moment okay. with medical direction so what that is is the navy has uh pretty much doctors that oversee all of our medical care so here at key west we have doctors that give us medical direction right we have flight surgeons uh we call them um, and they allow us to be able to perform things that are above our qualification level. So right now we have SMTs, which are SAR medical technicians. They're now starting to implement where those guys have to be nationally registered paramedic qualified, or at least is that, is that a rate the SMT? Is uh, like, yeah, that is okay. a, your corpsman, but you gotcha. get qualified as a SAR med medical technician. Okay. Mm-hmm. So those guys are able to push a lot more meds, but however, they're only nationally certified as EMTP, but they can push right. medicine. They have a lot of extra training up to a paramedic level. So that's where the DOD can allow us to be able to f- perform more based on that medical direction given by our flight surgeons. Gotcha. And that's how we're able to do all that. Okay. However, though, I would like to see our community get EMTB. We're looking right now to viable options to get EMTB implemented into our pipeline, which is yeah. that's not the problem is the initial pipeline is not the problem. It's getting the thousand plus guys uh, that are already in the fleet, already doing the job and cycle them through to get them nationally certified. So it'll be a huge yeah. challenge. Does the Navy have a EMT school in-house? Oh, uh, they do. So our SAR med techs in Pensacola, they have yeah. a, a a course to be able to uh, teach all those teach all those guys in their flight. I think it's called flight med school is what it is in Pensacola. Yeah. And they go through all the classroom um, training and then they take the national registry after their, after their schooling. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's cool that, yeah, they can like, I guess the SMT is how they can go under their like flight surgery protocol to mm-hmm. actually push med and stuff. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's must be just like a DOD thing. Yeah. Cause it's, like for from our end, yeah, that that would be like such a like insane process to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the yeah. DoD just happened. That's how they operate. So when able to, however, if there is someone that is nationally certified as a paramedic, right, we can turn over to the paramedic 
but yeah. not, not vice versa. So if a right. paramedic yeah, yeah. cannot turn Fire over to care. us, but we can turn over to them, right? Totally. Still in the civilian market, um, and in that kind of structure, we yeah. still that national certification kind of limits us. But however, we're still able to perform the higher level of care than right. what is the title. Yeah. And then do you have do you have people at your unit that like are EMTs and they can use their their yep. skill set? Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of them are right. Of oh, the nice. Yeah, three we have. We had one. I think he he just separated, but he he went through the paramedic school. He just he was waiting oh, yeah. to take the test for the national registry. So he was full certified. Went through all the ride alongs oh, nice. and everything. Yeah, like a the Navy paramedic school is that? Or is yeah, that different. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, okay. and the Navy I was, paramedic school. Gotcha. Okay, and that's in Pensacola. I thought you. Oh uh, no, so the, there's no paramedic school. That's EMTB okay. school. Yeah. Then they have like a program, I think in Virginia or North Carolina, something like that, where that's where we would send guys to go through. Yeah. Uh, is, it like a civ- a con- is it like a civilian? Yeah, it's civilian. I think it's contracted. Yeah. yeah. I'm not 100% sure, but I think I'm in the ballpark for that. Nice. But, that's mm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's kind of like the push. Like we would all like to be paramedics for our job. Um, but it's just like the I same problem that you guys are having for getting EMT is just like trying to figure out a way to train everyone that's cost effective. It's like just too expensive, I think. Mm-hmm. And like- are you going to require in the national registry? How many guys are you going to drop? Cause at least for EMTB, I believe it's what at 80% pass. Right. Rate, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, paramedic, it's not that at all. Um, spirit. Yeah. Apparently it's a very difficult test. It's going to be a lot harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then like some people just aren't going to be in- interested in doing that. Like it's a different job than you signed up for. So mm-hmm. yeah, it just depends. Yeah, uh, I guess I don't have a ton else that I wanted to like cover. Is there anything else that you you wanted to talk about on as far as? Um, so right now uh, we are going through kind of a huge revamp process. Yeah. Uh, with the changes of our pipeline. And I can kind of talk about what we're trying and where we're trying to go. Yeah. Um, so right now we're going through a thing called Ready Relevant Learning. And what that is, it is ran by the commander of Naval Air Forces, all of, like all of commander of Naval Air Forces. He owns every aircraft in the Navy. Yeah. It's he's revamp of all the training pipelines in the aviation side of the house. It is now our turn to go through that. So now we are recreating everything so it matches what our requirements are. So we're getting rid of all of the old stuff that we're learning that isn't applicable anymore, adding new stuff, adding new requirements, and kind of changing it for the better. It's, uh, it hasn't happened I believe in 20 years. And there's a small team throughout my entire rate. I'm currently working with three master chiefs, a couple senior chiefs, a chief, and then myself. I'm the only E5 in the Navy that is a part of this small team to create the changes. And it's been a it's been a learning process uh, because there's so much at the higher level that I don't see. Yeah. And I have to learn and have these senior guys who have been at that level for so long explain everything to me. So every single every single con- concern that we've ever had or question of why things the way they are, I'm being explained and it's starting all to make sense and we're trying to fix all of that. So the big thing that's a changing right now is like for a pipeline, like I said, boot camp will stay the same. Right now, at the beginning of this physical year, so in October when it starts, we are contracted out a rescue summer prep course, which is four weeks long. And it's going to be ran by all civilians and prior challenge guys, I believe, all Navy challenge guys. So they are former SEALs, EOD, SWAG, or swimmers. And they'll run through a prep course. And they'll be completely separate from the rescue swimmer schoolhouse. So you'll check out a boot camp and check into the prep course and get prepared through all the uh, extra swimming, attention to detail, all these little things that are going to add up before you go to rescue swimmer school. Yeah. So that's kind of exciting to see. That we're it's kind of like to... what they do for uh for buds, right? Yeah, they, yeah, they have a yes. prep course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah. we just got the contracted and funded. It's it's happening, it's signed, and that will happen this physical year. So those new candidates are going through after October. I guess they have a different pipeline that they're gonna go through. Um, and then if we get the EMTB, which I would like to see rescue summer school right now is around five to six weeks, it will most likely increase. We're thinking 12, 14, maybe 15 weeks, getting yeah. longer pipeline, which gives us and that's where I kind of come into play where I am reminding the senior guys and looking at every little detail when it comes to our training. Since I was the most recent guy to go through, I am going through how the schools ran, how everything was taught, what was taught, the amount of time it was taught and suggest, Hey, we should add more of this, increase the length of this or, um, addition of new procedures so for example we're developing new procedures down here that 
most likely going to go into uh, the schoolhouse and teach them how to work two swimmers at a time. What's the safety precautions for that? Um, so that's exciting, really big to increase that school. They're trying to push everything that is taught at the FRS and put it and earlier in the, in the training pipeline. So we don't have to spend so much classroom time at the fleet placement squadron. So when the guys check in there, all they have to focus on their flights and then getting aircraft knowledge, not mission set knowledge. So that's what yeah. we're trying to take away. And we're also trying to get them, get all of their groundwork done. So me for to be a aerial gunner and, you know, level two tactics qualification, we're trying to create an additional school after fleet replacement squadron where they'll go through a ground course where it's all classroom stuff and then they'll go to the fleet and just do flights and then they're qualified within a month or so maybe right and that's the idea what we like to see we're trying to work on that the viability of that uh so it's a lot of challenges right now we just finished a stage where we're kind of recreate we recreated and updated what our job is and what are we capable to do gotcha. and emt emtb uh was the suggestion uh, yeah. Now we're working on the phase two of training, which I'm still waiting on to see what happens with that. But that is uh, the future where we're trying to go. We're trying to get guys more on the fleet side of the house. They are going to get into the water more, more in-depth training on be able to do mass casualty exercises. Like the Navy has been training hard to prepare for catastrophe at sea, right? So what we're about to do down here in a, a month or so, we're going to do a mass casualty exercise and big life rafts. We'll have like 20 to 40 people. We're going to use two aircraft and see how long it takes to recover all of the aircraft, all the survivors with two yeah. aircraft and how we're going to mitigate. What's the process of having two aircraft hover maybe next to each other, having sp airspace deconfliction. Um, and we're only at a smaller level. We can't put that many aircraft in the air. The fleet, however, has already done stuff like this where there's three, four, maybe five aircraft that are airborne to recover a potential USS Indianapolis level uh, mass cast, you know, 200, 300 people. And that's where yeah. the search and rescue asset side of the house is being more, is more thought about. And now we're training for it seriously for a future war at sea, which is exciting. The guys are now going to get more, more medical training, more attention to detail when it comes to personnel recovery in the maritime environment. Yeah. Thanks. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Just adding capabilities. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Just like adding capabilities. There, right? mm -hmm. And before in the past, because of all the other mission sets that we have, you know, we've been leaning towards one mission set or the other and kind of the rescue summer side wasn't attention to detail as, as much. And now it's starting to switch to where what is more applicable and relevant now which is exciting. Really exciting. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Mm -hmm. yeah, we're kind of the same thing. We're always like trying to evolve the rate slowly to make it more, I mean, just a better job, you know, and just like be mm -hmm. able to provide higher level of care to, to our customers, you know, essentially. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's sweet. Yeah. yeah. Especially for our aviators and we're trying to be able to get that extended range, recover our survivors and, you know, keep them alive as long as we can to get them to higher care back to the ship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on, Brett. It was mm. a pleasure talking to you and I'm sure we'll, we'll probably do it again in the future when we get some updates on the rate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll see. Uh, you know, the, the timeline for this change is expedited and the Admiral is very adamant about getting all of this done. So uh, we'll see what happens in the next year or so. What is the future of the AWS community? We'll see. Awesome. All right. Yep. Thanks for coming on.